Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Matt D. Fothery, Lee Boyd, and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world, welcome to another exciting, enthralling, interesting, deep, important, and all-around cool episode of FNO InsureTech. I am your co-host, Rob Beller, and I'm joined today by... Lee Boyd. Hey, Rob. Yes, Lee. So whenever you introduce the podcast, you tell us how exciting and interesting and and wonderful it's going to be. But I was wondering if maybe you could tell your voice that because it sounds sad. So why don't <laughs> why, why don't you tell us how exciting it's going to be? Give me some umph. Okay, you want me to do it again? You want me to yeah. try that again? Okay, ready? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, podcast world, welcome to a absolutely phenomenal, fantastic, interesting, and exciting episode of FNO InsureTech. I love it. I love it. Look at that. Your your voice heard you. Was that better? That was much better. Thanks, Lee. I needed yeah. that. I'm psyched up. I can put away my nap pillow. You know, I'm living here in Northern California. We're having fire after fire after fire. It's smoky outside, so I can't exercise outside today. So I have a COVID double whammy. I can't go to the health club because it's closed, and I can't exercise outside because it's smoky. That is a bummer. You know, I'm yeah. going to go to the health club and exercise outside because I live in Texas. Everything's better in well, Texas. That's what people in Texas say all the time. Today's guest is so great that in the first interview we did with her, we couldn't even get through it all. So we had to do a second one. That's true. And this is the second one. This is the second one with Debbie Brackeen, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at CSAA Insurance Group. One of our customers, a leader here in California in the industry, and just an all-around progressive, interesting company. And Debbie is certainly part of the face of that. Yeah, she is so interesting. She has a wonderful history with her work history. And even before this podcast, we talked a little bit about being a lifetime learner, you know, continuing to get better at what she's doing. And today, I think we're going to get to talk about that. We're going to get to talk about some of the things they're doing and some of the looks into the future. That's right, Lee. We're, we're going to cover many interesting topics today, both personal, professional, and technical. Yeah. And so um, instead of us jibber-jabbering about it, why don't we hear from Debbie? What do you think? I think that's the best idea you've had yet. Here is our wrap-up interview with Debbie Brackeen, Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at CSAA Insurance Group. Hey, everybody. We are here with our returning special guest, Debbie Brackeen. Uh, give us your title again, Debbie. Hi. I'm a Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer for CSAA Insurance Group. That's a cool title. I will <laughs> When you're done with that title, can I use it for a while? Anytime. <laughs> I, I don't deserve it at all, but I would take it nonetheless. That's really cool. And as you all know, we've had Debbie on previously. We're having her back because Debbie has such a remarkable resume and background 
that it was hard to cover everything in one episode. So we're going to continue on today and cover some of the topics that we weren't able to cover in her first episode. But we want to start by saying again, welcome and thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you so much for having me. Where are you today? Today I'm working out of my home office in Santa Cruz, California. Ugh, I shouldn't have asked that. Is it a nice day in Santa Cruz? Well, it's a little bit hazy, to be honest. We have many wildfires burning around the state of California, including in uh, Northern California. And while it's they're not too close to Santa Cruz, we're definitely getting some of the, the haze and tinge of smoke in the air. And that's kind of where we wanted to start today to talk about the Northern California fires. And as we're recording this today, the glass fire in Napa, for all you wine drinkers out there, is is raging and um, has already created some devastating damage in the region. And of course, that's within the heart of your PIF area. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we are tracking the glass fire and at least half a dozen others in Northern California for impacts to our policyholders uh, actively. It's a terrible year up here. I too am in Northern California and um, it's just been a record year, I think is fair to say, as far as the fire season goes. And one of the places that we wanted to start with you was tell us about how somebody in your position interacts with a catastrophe as it's occurring. You know, what value your team brings uh, at a time like this? That's a really good question. Obviously, you know, when there's fires going on or that, that's the primary catastrophe we have here in California and on the West Coast, we're not the first, you know, kind of to respond. Obviously, that's our emergency operations uh, center and claims in particular. But, you know, we have a very strong service-oriented culture across the whole company and strong kind of volunteerism as a core component of our culture. And when there's something like this going on, usually we actually have something called the operations reserves. I'm a member of it. And we do outbound, we call them wellness check calls to our policyholders in affected areas. My team always signs up to do that along with lots of other you know, folks across the company. So during the active fires, we, we don't have such a big role to play. After the two horrible Northern California fires in 2017 and 18, we did a lot of, I would say, design and customer empathy work, especially with folks who had total losses where their homes, they lost everything, basically, not only their homes, but all of their belongings. And we partnered with Claims in that scenario to really reimagine how we could better serve people when they're in that state of shock emotionally and, you know, don't have anything. I mean, there's all the basic things we always do. We, we offer prepaid cards so they, you know, they can go get into a hotel and all of that. But we really, you know, spent a lot of time just rethinking how we could better show up. And that resulted in, I guess, an innovation, uh, which is a, you know, kind of a path, the path to recovery uh, started out as a big notebook, and I think we made it virtual over time, but just better ways that we can serve policyholders who are, how do you think about what to do next when you're just in shock, you know, right. um, from a horrible disaster? So that's one thing that we've done. More recently, we've partnered with Claims on 
what we called virtual cat trailer, sort of in anticipation of this year's fire season. And the idea there was in the COVID-19 pandemic era, if we, you know, where social distancing and, and all of that is, is a, a need and people need to go to a shelter or something because their home burned down or they can't stay or they had to evacuate. How can we virtually sort of, because we usually we have cat trailers, we drive up into the, you know, to the area where there's a fire so people can come in and get help and get a cup of coffee and a blanket and whatever they may need. So how do we try to be there virtually if we can't be there physically? That's mm-hmm. one innovation we've partnered with them on. An active pilot that we started right before all these fires was there's a new technology that is offered. I think it's called Fortify, and it's available through perimeter systems. And we're, we've been conducting a pilot with a small number of policyholders. It's kind of a gel that you don't spray on the home, but around your surrounding property area and around the perimeter of the home, it's basically a fire retardant of some sort to prevent you know, the spread of fire. And we're, we're really, I mean, we don't want a fire to occur on the places where we sprayed it. We're really (laughs) testing. For all kinds of reasons. Yes, exactly. Really Mm -hmm. testing more just customer acceptance of something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are a number of ways that we try to partner primarily with claims to do what we can to, you know, always improve our response during a catastrophe and or after it. We have an enduring purpose statement at our company. It's kind of like our mission. We're committed to excellence in everything that we do to help members prevent, prepare for, and recover from life's uncertainties. But we also, you know, the second half of the purpose statement is we continuously challenge ourselves to find innovative and better ways to serve members and communities with care and compassion. So we try to live up to that purpose statement in this context. And I think that's really interesting. I myself work mostly in sales and marketing, but I push myself to attend many operational meetings at our company. And the reason that I do that is because I learn so much by attending those meetings. I might not have that much to value add, but I gain a lot of information. And one of the things that I that you mentioned that I thought is probably very important is that your team gets involved in these things so that they can be thinking about Wow, I the, the more information they have, probably the more opportunities that leads to ideas, initiatives. Is that what you find? Is that why you encourage it or one of the reasons? Absolutely. And uh, you know, for myself personally, you know, when I've signed up to do the kind of proactive outbound wellness calls with policyholders, we also listen to just you know, you, that we have a phone number where you can log in and listen to just day-to-day serv- people calling into our, our service agents and asking more mundane questions. But for sure, during a catastrophe, for people who've been evacuated, talking to them in the, in the midst of something going on that has disrupted their lives, there's just no replacement for the empathy you can have. And that's one of the most important, that's a core tenet, I would say, of any innovation function is really having empathy for our customer. And there's no better way to do that than to talk to them directly, for sure. You know, one of the topics that we've talked about bringing up today is innovation as a team sport. Let's talk about that for a minute. I think that this is probably a good lead in to that. Would you agree? 
Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Share with us about being an innovation leader, about the different ways that you gather information about what you should be innovating on. Like we said before, by getting in the middle of a terrible catastrophic situation like this, it's certainly going to spawn ideas for you. Is that a general philosophy that you have by getting out into the organization and doing it? What do you mean by innovation is a team sport? One thing that I aligned on very strongly with the CEO who hired me into the company almost four years ago, we, we have a, a new CEO as of about a year and a half ago. Both of them are great, but Paula was the first CEO I worked for here. And we aligned really strongly on the fact that the aspiration for my division was not just to generate and churn out ourselves alone, kind of over there on the side, interesting, innovative concepts, you know, solutions, whatever. But really, so it wasn't really just about building an innovation department, but rather helping build a more innovative company that truly puts customers first. And so much of what my team and I work on is really in partnership with some other part of the company. It could be a back office type of innovation that's about efficiency and cost savings, and it could be a customer facing um, innovation. But that's really what I mean when I say innovation is a team sport. They're, it's perfectly valid, and there are lots of companies who set up an innovation lab or center or function that doesn't interact that closely with core business. That is just not a philosophy that I personally find to be as powerful as an innovation you know, function that's much more tightly integrated with core business. That makes total sense. We've had the privilege of speaking with you before. We talked a lot about what what you've done and where you've been. And when we talk about innovation and strategy within a company, a lot of times we talk about innovation burnout. We bring new ideas to the team and we have to keep encouraging them to, to try new things, be inventive, you know, try, try this new process. But today I want to ask about you. You know, what do you do to stay motivated in your job with strategy and innovation? What do you personally do? Well, it's definitely a topic that I'm very passionate about. One of the reasons I was very excited to take the opportunity at CSAIG is because it wasn't just a chief innovation officer, it was chief strategy and innovation officer ensuring that alignment with strategy. I just feel really, I guess I'm competitive at the end of the day. I used to play okay. soccer. I can't play anymore. We might've talked about this before. I can't remember, but mm -hmm. You know, I take any role that I'm in, you know, whether it's on a soccer field or in my role in the company here, I guess I'm kind of wired to play to win. For us, playing to win means that we have to be growing sustainably. We have to be diversifying strategically, you know, because the personal auto you know, insurance market is at some point in the next several years going to peak and begin to decline in large part because of new technologies or new uh, business models, you know, whether it's the sharing economy and the Uber and Lyft platforms or other, you know, mobility services that don't require families to have two cars at home. You know, they, maybe they keep one, but they, you know, they're consuming mobility services to get around eliminating the need for the second car. 
Mm -hmm. uh, or the long-term kind of existential threat, obviously being autonomous vehicles. So, you know, I, I find my motivation and inspiration in playing my role on the team, which is to make sure that we're always looking externally, monitoring, you know, the market trends, consumer preferences, new technologies that can disrupt or transform what's possible, you know, identifying specific ways in which we can respond as a business to those kind of external trends and technologies and, and market forces. Well, I think all that's great. In a minute, I want to talk about autonomous vehicles, as you just mentioned. But I first want to ask one more question about your role. With strategy and innovation, a lot of times we don't know how to judge if we're doing a good job and that we, we know whenever we're not because we, we're losing clients, we're losing market share, we're not innovative, we're not strategic enough. But how is it, what do you grade yourself on at the end of the day or in the end of the week to know if, if you're doing a good job in your role? <laughs> That's a great question. Personally, you know, I, I think you could define innovation very broadly as anything new that creates value, but that's super broad. And, you know, we use one tried and true and old framework, but I think it's still valuable, the, the McKinsey Three Horizons of Growth kind of framework to think about our, our portfolio. So horizon one is what are you doing to help improve the core business? And we do a lot of stuff with our core business. We talk a little bit about some of the claims innovation work around wildfire response. Uh, we, we've done a lot of other projects with core business, core personal lines business. Horizon two is sort of expanding into adjacencies, whether they be, you know, channel adjacencies, products, new market segments. And Horizon three is much more about future optionality, you know, kind of exploring what might be possible. So autonomous vehicles for us has sort of been sitting in Horizon three for a while. Um, but ultimately, anything that we do has to you know, deliver some sort of value to the business, you know, whether it's revenue, cost savings, or something on the customer experience. And you actually have to execute things and get them in market for those strategic value measures to be even possible. Right. You know, so one thing that I started working on really early after I joined, you know, just recognizing the long-term threat of autonomous vehicles as an example, and the more near-term impact of the sharing economy and rideshare, car share, et cetera, was that we needed to strategically diversify away from personal auto, not because we're leaving it or abandoning it, but to have an alternative that represented future growth for the company. An obvious place to look, and I think we've seen this with a lot of insurers, is you know commercial. But we were not focusing on traditional commercial auto, uh, which is very difficult. I think, um, market, but rather, you know, commercial insurance as it relates to, you know, the emerging needs of the sharing economy and the evolving mobility sector. And so we have a, a business called Mobilitas. In that case, we actually created a new business <laughs> yeah. uh, and a separate brand focused on commercial. And we have some exciting news that's hitting the market imminently. 
some news hitting the wire about commercial risk that is being awarded to a number of different insurers by Lyft for you know their rideshare business in different states. And Mobilitas is going to be one of those insurers, which is great because we're- Congratulations. Yeah, we're winning some business alongside some big names in the industry. So to me, like that's a great measure of success. Absolutely. You know, it's been a long road. It's, you know, we're in the third year of that effort to stand up the business, but it goes back to this notion of the team sport and making the company a more innovative company. And, you know, just that you have to bring people along, you know, CSAA insurance group is a triple A insurer. We've been doing personal auto for over a hundred years. And, you know, that's been our primary business model and orientation And when I introduced the idea of, you know, maybe we really need to think about commercial insurance, particularly as it relates to the sharing economy, most people looked at me like I was crazy, to be perfectly honest. And it took a long time to kind of explain the rationale, to kind of win hearts and minds, to even bring people to the point of being able to see why it might be a good idea. And and those things just don't happen overnight. And, and, and I, you know, so to me, it's super gratifying personally, but I'm also Mm -hmm. just incredibly proud of not just my team, but really the whole company. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's truly been a collaborative effort touching, I think pretty much every division and function in the company to make that happen and to get to the point where, you know, we're going to see some news now about a little insurance company that nobody's heard of yet. That's really exciting. And, you know, I want to talk about strategy just for a minute, just to finish up on this point. I would think traditionally a chief strategy officer would be somebody who has very deep experience in the industry so that they you know, they have a real good handle on what's happening, like you said, externally. What qualified you to be the chief strategy officer at an insurance company? As we've talked before, this is your first foray in insurance. And I certainly understand why you got the title of chief innovation officer, but why did you want it and why did they want to give it to you, the strategy option as well? Yeah, that's a completely valid question. I'm probably not your, I'm certainly not your prototypical chief strategy officer for the insurance industry. I think honestly, the short answer, and and we had quite a bit of dialogue about this when I was in the interview process. I think the short answer is strategically, the company realized disruption was happening in the industry. You know, billions of dollars going into insured tech startups, billions of dollars going into new platforms like Uber and Lyft, you know, car share, ride share. Uh, that would have some impact, you know, on um, how people use their personal autos or not. And the hundreds of billions of dollars going into autonomous vehicle technology and some companies declaring pretty aggressively, and they're going to be on the road in 2021 or whatever was said, which is obviously a little aggressive. But, you know, I think it was the motivation came from the disruptive innovation angle, if that makes sense. And recognizing that strategically, we had to figure it out as a company where, how do we respond and what do we do about that? I can say that the VP of strategy, I've had two since I've been here, you know, those people are experts and veterans. So, you know, I'm, I'm not purporting to be an expert in strategy <laughs> insurance because uh, it's not my forte, but I am smart enough to know when I need to have people who do have that expertise on the team. So. That's the short answer. 
I'll say when I worked at HP and ran HP Corporate Ventures, I was part of a larger division called Strategy and Corporate Development. And, you know, my team was working on new business models, you know, new innovations, uh, inventions coming out of HP Labs and how might we monetize them, et cetera. But a lot of people would come to my team and say, you guys are kind of the ones doing strategy, you know, especially when we were experimenting with new business models you know, because strategy for large mature companies can, can encompass a lot of very mundane things, you know? We have a lot of interest. The deeper we get into our podcast, the more we keep coming across all the different kinds of aspects and everything about autonomous vehicles and not just that, but mobility in general. Yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a link to a scooter, right? that he thinks that we should both buy one because we both work from home and we might not really need our car. So we should get scooters, Mm -hmm. um, which is all the mobility that we might need. So let's go down what autonomous vehicles and mobility means to you and to, to CSAA now. I would say that, you know, we are working on our autonomous vehicle strategy. And I think that this is an example of something that I personally put in what I described as horizon three, you know, something that we're exploring, we're trying to understand, we're talking with a lot of different players in the industry, a simple way to that kind of provocation, if you will, that I, I use with my team who's working on this is, you know, for a hundred plus year old personal auto insurance company, whose expertise is around, underwriting human drivers who are driving their own cars that they either own or they've leased. How would we think about underwriting a software driver of an autonomous vehicle that's likely hailed on demand and it's a fleet, you know, a fleet owned kind of vehicle, if you will. So I would say, you know, we're in the process of, of trying to answer that question. I think with our commercial business that I alluded to earlier, Certainly what's happening in autonomous vehicles and is something that's on the radar for something we could ensure in the future. The other thing that I personally find really interesting about autonomous vehicle technology, you know, it's, there's the, the five levels. Uh, most of the newer vehicles out on the road today are level two ADAS, you know, uh, related technologies adaptive cruise control, lane assist, all that stuff, or autopilot if you happen to own a Tesla. But as I understand it from the research that we've done, you know, most of the major OEMs are looking at level three technology coming out sometime next year. What's that? What's level three? Level three, I'm not an engineer, but I'll, I'll give my layperson's uh, understanding Please. of it. <laughs> Good. Then we'll understand it. Go ahead. You know, there's, there's a great schema that we've used in some slides internally. I don't know who created it, but, you know, level one and level two shows a little stick person with two hands on a steering wheel. And when you get to level three, um, there's only one hand of that stick person on the steering wheel. And then level five, there's, I don't think there's even a steering wheel to put hands on. <laughs> so, and I can't remember what the level four icon looks like, but the key thing about level three is there, the control can be passed from the human to the autonomous vehicle drive, you know, software driver and back 
which is very complicated, right? I mean, I don't exactly know how that's going to work in practice. And so just like somewhat analogously to the fact that when, you know, Uber and Lyft drivers started driving for those platforms, technically they're driving in a commercial exposure when they have, you know, passenger in their car. Correct. And maybe don't know it and probably are just using their personal auto insurance as their insurance. Um, Similarly, like what happens in our personal lines book when people, I mean, we have a version of this, I guess, with the, the, the new, you know, ADAS type technologies as well, but it gets a lot more complicated. I think when you have a level three autonomous or, or level three technology in cars that humans are still driving and sometimes letting the car drive itself. Is that kind of like where Tesla is now? Would they be considered level three? I, I think that um, technically Tesla's level autopilot is level two, but they, they clearly seem to be pushing the envelope a little more maybe than some of the other auto OEMs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have driven a Tesla or <laughs> been in the driver's seat while it drove itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really cool. It's kind of exciting and fun. Well, I think it's really, really important to be thinking about that because even with the the new information that came out of California wanting to ban, you know, gas powered vehicles by 2035, that sets a time frame for these electric vehicles to come out. Now with electric vehicles, you're going to have a lot smarter car and think about where they're going to be in 15 years. That is a play that you've got to to work on with the strategic thinking around how will these work? How, how do we underwrite them? How do we pay the claims? Who pays the claims if uh, they get to that level three, four, five? Exactly. I mean, that that's a, a big world. It's a very difficult one to work on, I would think. Exactly. It's much more complex, I think, than kind of, you know, what we we know well from, you know, the personal lines. And, you know, just thinking about accident diagnostics, like yeah. to what or whom do you attribute liability in a given situation and how does that get sorted out? It's all technology and software. So theoretically you could have some sort of black box, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. A flight recorder. Yeah. You know, I am certainly far from an expert on any of this, um, either insurance or AV technology, but I know that it's something that we need to be aggressively learning about and understanding and thinking through relative to the impact on our business, but also how we can think about future business, future customer needs that we can serve. And who are those customers? Are they AV fleet owners? You know, we have to think Mm -hmm. about that. But I think it also opens a whole universe of possibilities for passengers. You know, maybe there's passenger coverages, you know, that need to be thought through and or other services and things we might not traditionally be thinking about that we could offer riders (laughs) riders <laughs> in yeah. those future AV fleets that I would love to, you know, have available to me here in Santa Cruz. If I just want to hail an AV that's going to take me to the offices back in Walnut Creek, you know, All right. Um, right. going to be awesome. Or, you know, in the future, the flying taxi, you know, Jetsons version of that. <laughs> I'm waiting for that. <laughs> right. The future is so large. That's one of the things I'm hearing. It's so big. There's so many possible directions it could go in without getting too deep into this do you have to place some bets kind of look at everything and say okay we're going to place some bets on these things 
we're not going to work on these things. And we're going to hope that these bets are where it's all going. Exactly. You know, I think that's exactly what we do and, and try to do and challenge each other around. Um, We're working on our, you know, as we do every time around this time of year, you know, we're working on the next three-year plan. Uh, We always front end that effort, the, the operational planning process with sort of a strategy sync. You know, it always inspires some conversation about, you know, we really ought to be doing X, Y, Z. And then that followed by conversations around, do we really have the, you know, the capacity to do that? What's the most important priority? So, you know, this strategy team in my division is actively working with our core business, as well as, you know, the new commercial business and, and our own team on, you know, exactly the question of where are we placing our strategic bets for the future? you know, whether they're in our core business or something that we might aspire to do, you know, in a longer time frame, a longer time horizon. Those are some of the hardest choices to make. So I'll give you an example. I, I was sort of half joking about the Jetsons flying taxis. I, I certainly would love to have one of those. And, um, but we're yeah. looking at, you know, d- drones as well. And there's going to be delivery drones. Amazon just recently got FAA approval for their Amazon Prime Air delivery drones. Cool. Uh, Alphabet's Wing and UPS are also have FAA approval and they're running kind of commercial pilots in different markets for that. At some point in the future, there will be, you know, the pilots around the, the flying taxis. What's going to happen faster, you know, in terms of commercial adoption and availability? Is it going to be the stuff in the air or the stuff on the roads? You know, that's sort of an interesting discussion yeah, to think about sure. because the roads are complicated, certainly, because as autonomous vehicle technology advances, there's still going to be a whole lot of human drivers driving older cars on the roads. And so how is that going to play out? Theoretically, maybe, you know, the space in the air is a little less crowded, but I don't know. But we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. Certainly, the safety issue in the air is maybe more pressing, even. Yeah. Than, although, I mean, more people die on the road, of course, every year than probably in the air. You know, we had an experience at our company at 470 a couple of years ago. We decided that we're going to really pursue and chase insurteching claims, which is what our business is. And that's what, even, in fact, even led to the podcast was all of our research and homework and looking and talking about InsureTech and all the learning we were doing. That was one of the things that I learned from it is, is that even three years ago, there were already lots of different companies to bet on. And we made some good bets and we made some bad bets. You know, one of the things that we knew regardless was is that Everyone else was, no matter how fast we went, everyone else was going to catch up with us. And some companies would even have an advantage by being behind because they wouldn't be investing in and committing to uh, maybe some ideas that turned out to be a dead end. That part of innovation and innovation planning and forward-looking, and I guess strategy is another word for it, is really very interesting. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. You hope for a good batting average. No one bats a thousand. No, yeah, I think you know. There's been a lot of dialogue over the last several years. You know, at least five, maybe going on ten, where we you commonly hear people talk about 
the pace of change is accelerating. Everybody feels it. And I do think it feels that way. You know, all of these new technologies that we enjoy in our personal lives and professional lives, they enable, you know, like Amazon Web Services and the cloud and programming tools that, you know, where it's never been, you know, cheaper or easier to start a new business, you know, the app economy, all of that, the pace of change definitely to me feels like it's picked up, you know, whereas maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago, strategy, Michael Porter, you know, five forces or whatever they were, there's probably still some validity to those, but gone are the days where you can set it and forget it on a strategy and think you have barriers to entry and stuff. There's a lot of lines that are blurring as more gets done in software. And, and I think that and change is just seems like it's happens very fast. So it's almost like part of a competitive advantage strategy needs to include your ability to adapt quickly and to try things quickly and kill them quickly if yes. they don't work and pivot quickly to something that does and always be looking for what's on the horizon, the early signals of things that are going to change because, you know, how lasting is anything, right? You know? Yeah. And the willingness to pivot. I mean, that's something we talk about with startups a lot, right? Most people have a pivot or two in their history. With that, we're talking about pivoting, pivoting fast, being prepared. You know, whenever we think about COVID earlier this year, we had to pivot. Every organization had to change the way they were doing business internally and externally. You had to meet your customers' needs differently and your internal employees. Today, I was reading through some old memos that I had written back in March and April, and they seemed so short-term. Uh, <laughs> we, we did it so quick, but it seemed like, hey, it's going to be this way for a short amount of time, and then we'll go back to normal. And what we found is, is that we're still there and we're still having to pivot. I'm curious on your world dealing with COVID. What was that like? And also I'm wondering, do you think that we'll ever go back to where we were beforehand? Or do you think that this has made a long-term impact on the way that we do business internally and externally? Great question. We also very quickly, when COVID happened, got everybody in the company, basically you know, 99% of the employees working from home. And if you'd asked anybody the week before we did that, would it even be possible? Nobody would have said, yeah, sure, no problem. We would have said, ooh, yeah, I don't know. That's going to be really hard. But Absolutely. we did it. And then we went through what felt like several months of, here's an update. Uh, we think we're going to go back to the office on this date. We'll give you you know, we'll communicate with you next two or three weeks in advance of that date when we think we're going to. So we did a couple of rounds of that. Yeah. And then we just said, you know what, we're not going to set another date, you know, before next year. So we'll be communicating with you at some point in January. And we're going to continue having everybody work from home because that seems like the safest thing to do right now. So right. we went through our own version of that. I think to your question of, is this the new normal or is it, does it ever go back or is it, you know, not go back at all? I think the answer is probably somewhere. It's a bit of a hybrid mix in mm -hmm. my mind. You know, I think there are, we, you know, in claims, we were talking about claims earlier, you know, thankfully we had already begun some pilots, you know, collaborations with claims on things that you could call virtual or touchless. And that benefited us well. And whatever was already in flight, the claims team had to quickly pivot to doing everything virtually. And I don't think that as, as one example will ever go back to how it was before. It'll probably just stay that way. 
I think most of the major carriers, including us, because most people were sheltered in place and not driving to work and not driving at all initially, you know, we, we had lower frequency and most carriers, you know, gave premium refunds to customers in recognition of that. You know, to me, you know, I think we've also kind of seen an increase. This is more anecdotal. I don't have any data on it, but it feels to me like suddenly there's a lot more talk about mileage-based underwriting and, you know, usage-based underwriting. Right. Um, And if people weren't aware of the relationship between how many miles they drive and, and their premiums, you know, before the pandemic, they certainly are more likely to be aware now. Absolutely. So is, you know, is that kind of a, a lasting change that will persist? Probably. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah. And then, you know, there's so many things that we did, both for the community, for our employees. We already had a real strong emphasis on wellness in general. And, um, you know, we've made available a lot more resources and trying to have a more kind of active dialogue about mental health. Cause I think this is pretty crazy making, even if no matter how healthy you may be, yeah. being at home talking to a, a, a screen every day, yeah. hiring, you know, I have so much money. I just sent my kid off to college uh, for the first time, but people with younger kids who are, you know, trying to work from home and also terrible kids school, take school from home. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, but, it's a, yeah. It's That's a hardship. Exactly. But we've done some really exciting, cool things. For example, I can't remember if we talked about this the last time, but we ran a, our first ever company-wide innovation challenge the last two weeks in April. And we did it for a few reasons, but it was, it was the COVID-19 innovation challenge. And we said, what are your ideas about things we could do to help, you know, help our communities who are dealing with this, like help with the problem of COVID? And what are ideas that we can do to help our customers, our policyholders? And one of the ideas that came up in service of the broader COVID concern was, you know, we had some underutilized resources in operations because of the lower frequency I just mentioned. And one of the ideas was, well, what if we redeployed some of those folks who aren't so busy right now to help states with, you know, contact tracing? And mm. we've now stood that up. We have several contracts in different states helping process contact tracing and also wow. unemployment claims. And so now we're in a conversation is like when all of this passes and there's no longer need for the contact tracing and the unemployment claims, should that become a new business? You know, can we have some sort of specialized services business? So I don't know where we'll land on that, but you know, we've done stuff like that as well. You know, and and I think we are still talking about what it looks like when we go back. I think no matter what, we'll probably have more flexible um, work from home, work from office types of arrangements. We haven't settled on what we think it actually looks like. As a leader of innovation, I'll say one thing I'm really worried about is, you know, it's kind of hard to be collaborative and innovative. It's not impossible, but it's kind of hard when everybody's remote. Yeah. And in particular, what I, I think my team is missing is the sort of serendipitous unexpected collisions that you have with people in the office or at, in a cafeteria line that spark amazing insights and ideas you know, that you can act on. So I'm kind of worried about that. In addition, just to the, the human connection, I think we're probably all missing right now. I agree. As somebody who's worked remote for years, what I've had to do, particularly in my particular role at the company, 
I have to force that communication, those kind of serendipitous communications, which, <laughs> I mean, that's almost, you know, a, a contradiction in terms, but you're absolutely right. And I hear about it from the people, our headquarters is in Waco and the people in Waco where most of our employees are, they have that benefit or they had it before this. I was never in the middle of it or in the heart of it. And I just kind of had to impose myself to make that happen. But you're absolutely right. I've had experience with that, that that's absolutely one of the things that we miss when we're all remote is those opportunities that, that are just human by nature. Exactly. Yeah. It, it really is how we are wired, I think, biologically as humans. it's. I just have been checking in with everybody on my team um, the last couple of weeks, and, and uh, I think everybody's feeling it, you know, just missing seeing each other in the office, even if you don't really stop and have a big conversation, just miss being around people. Well, once again, we've chewed through the better part of an hour with you talking about just a whole assortment of interesting things. And of course, I'm going to say, well, why don't we do it again next month? <laughs> and in fact, maybe we'll make you your own little bobblehead on our logo and you can join us and, right. and start interviewing people. I think you'd be good at it. Have you ever done that before? Would you like to do that? I have never done it before. Okay. I love talking to people. I, I should say I'm an introvert, but I do enjoy conversations like this. I always feel like it's always interesting to just hear other people's perspectives. And I certainly enjoy talking about this topic of innovation. It is a passion of mine and I've been lucky to be able to pursue it. But yeah, maybe at some point in the future. Well, you just volunteered yourself without knowing it. <laughs> to be a guest host on a future segment. We'll have to find the right opportunity for you, but we're going to get you on and let you see what it's like on this side of the microphone, which of course is the harder, more difficult side of the microphone. Of let's, course. let's just all acknowledge <laughs> that right now. Yeah. But listen, thank you once again. Thank you so much. And we wish you all the best, not only in your work, but also being of service to your insurance at this difficult time for so many of them. And we look forward to meeting you actually maybe face-to-face -face at some point in time and having one of those serendipitous conversations. I would love that. That would be great to meet uh, in person at some point. Thanks again for joining us. And thanks to your team as well for making this happen. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. All right. Thank you. You guys take care. Lee, the fact that she was willing to take on the strategy job as well as the innovation job without an insurance background says a lot about Debbie Breckin. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. And I think that it sounds like she's done a wonderful job. And a lot of times in innovation and strategy, you need somebody who's not uh, completely in the know. You need somebody to come out and say, now, why, why is it we're doing it this way? Because it doesn't seem logical. So sometimes it's best to be able to get somebody, but what a big job for her. She has a great resume behind her. She's a lifelong learner, as we learned before the podcast. And yeah, I think that she's doing a great job. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think the next time she comes on, we don't even talk insurance. We don't talk tech. We just talk her. We talk about what all she's done and what all she is happy that she's done, regrets, things like that. Sure. I mean, and being courageous, I mean, to move through different industries as you move through your career, I think takes some courage, right? Absolutely. Most of us lock into something and that's where we stay because that's where we think we have the most value. Yeah. I mean, to see somebody continually move up 
uh, up and up and up within different industries, that's not that's not done a lot. I mean, there's a lot of people in this world, and a lot of people make horizontal moves, right? They just go sideways. But uh, yeah, she's really good at what she does, and and it shows. Well, we thank her for enduring us a second time and look forward to having her on as a guest host at some point in the future. It, we should get somebody on the show that can ask good questions, don't you think? I agree. Uh-huh. So if we can't do it, it might as well be Debbie Burkeen. We thank Debbie and Paul for all of his work in making this happen. And we thank you, as always, for being with us and enduring this and listening to us. Because even though we say at the beginning... Welcome to another exciting, enthralling, stupendous episode of FNO Chertech. We're kind of being, kind of being, that's kind of tongue-in-cheek. We're kind of being silly about that, aren't we, Lee? I'm not. I think it's very exciting and thrilling. Okay. Well, then there you go, ladies and gentlemen. We thank you for being with us, and we wanted to say... Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.